This is a podcast from the Research and Development Society of the 2008 Duncan Davies Medal Lecture, given by Sir David King on the challenges of the 21st century. This is uh, uh, a, a topic that uh, I think we all need to think about and address, because I am going to say to you at once that I think the 21st century challenges we're faced with are qualitatively different from the challenges we've ever had to face up to before. Let me just start, though, by, by saying, and I think science and engineering are going to be needed as never before to address them. I'll give you an example of a situation where scientific knowledge quite recently could have been used and wasn't, uh, but with, uh, with rather awful consequences. I'm talking about the Indonesian tsunami in 2004. That was... The Sumatran Trench, the connection between two of the great plates that carry the continents and are in collision, the Sumatran Trench was a part of that collision process where the plates had continued to move except along the trench over the last hundred years or so, and the stress along the trench was growing, and the plate tectonics experts, the seismologists, had all understood this and was saying, this is the next big disaster that is heading our way, and we know it's going to happen, and it's just a matter of time. And on December 26, 2004, it happened, and it was just off the coast of Banda Aceh, and, of course, the, uh, uh, the region around Banda Aceh was completely destroyed within minutes of the tsunami occurring that followed the, the breakdown of the trench. And then we all watched with horror as the, the television showed us the tsunami going across to Sri Lanka and India, and this took a little while. And the total fatality uh, was about 240,000 people died. Of whom, if we had had an early warning system in place before the event in the Indian Ocean, something like 150,000 could have been saved. This was a lesson that was learned from Bangladesh, from, and the early warning systems in that uh, area have been amazingly successful. Several hundred thousand deaths some 20 years ago resulted in that early warning system being put into place. Now, here is a, a real issue. I went to the United Nations and said, why didn't we get earlier action? And I was told by the, the senior people in the HCR, there was no way that we would know that this was going to happen in the Indian Ocean. I said, but the seismologists, Californian and British seismologists, that summer went to India, to Sri Lanka, to Indonesia to say, you need an early warning system. It was costed at $30 million, and they didn't have a mechanism of getting their scientific advice through to the governments, so it never percolated up to Prime Minister level. $30 million would have been the cost. Of course, now there's an early warning system in place in the Indian Ocean. Historically, we've been very bad at this. I'll give you a previous example. 1985, there was a tsunami off the Peruvian coast. The plate tectonics experts predicted that as well. 
And so the early warning system went into the Pacific after the event as well. So here's just a plea that we try to manage what science and the knowledge system can tell us in advance of these disasters. So as we now come back to what I want to say about the 21st century, and of course I'm going to address this question of how we can use the best of science and technology. Everything I'm going to say hinges around the information on this slide, which is the rate <coughs> at which our global population has been growing. So around 1800, we, we reached 1 billion in a rather faltering and slow way. And then our population took off, the Industrial Revolution being the big driver of that, and I have to say, and the British Empire as a mechanism for seeing that it got around the world very quickly. And we saw a second billion take 123 years, reached there in 1930, and then during the 20th century, we started adding another billion every 12 years. Now it's slowing down, it's taken 13, it will take 13 years for the seventh billion, but we will reach the 8 billion mark in 2028, plus or minus a bit, and by mid-century we will probably plateau out at about 9 billion. So we now need to be planning for a global population of around 9 billion. I'm taking this as a given, but of course we also need to be working on maintaining a lower level of population growth. However, there's a natural process taking place. If you look at any society historically, you will see that we have a stability between fatality rate and birth rate over long periods of time. And in Britain, as in other countries, that meant that female fecundity rates were about seven or eight, eight children per woman. And the survival rate was just over two and that led to a stable population, 2.1 being, roughly speaking, the, the, the number of births required per woman to create a stable population. And then what happens is, as the living improvements uh, come about, engineering providing clean water, I would say one of the keys, vaccines another key, we get a much better survival rate, so the result is that our lifespan increases. And as our lifespan increases, more people, many more people, survive into maturity and want to have children of their own. And that's what produces population growth. Simple dynamic. It turns out that when women understand what's happening, the female fecundity rate drops. And so in Britain today, it's 1.85. And that is being replicated around the world. So if you go to South America, what was 7 or 8, 15 years ago, is now 2.2. Female empowerment, female education, absolutely crucial to that process. But I would say, even though female fecundity is falling around the world, we are going to see, a, 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 we are therefore going to see a plateau at about 9 billion. Population predictions are continually dropping, and this is because <coughs> of the unexpected fall in that, uh, that birth rate. So, let's take it as a given. We have to plan for 9 billion people. What are the 
challenges, therefore, that arise from this. Well, here's what I'm suggesting are the very specific set of challenges that are totally different from, for example, the challenges we faced at the turn of the last century. Turn of the last century, life expectancy 45, and we had abundant supplies for the one and a half billion people. And where we are today at 6.8 billion, we're already beginning to see the impacts of the pressure on resources whether it's oil prices or food prices. And I have been saying this for years before the recent hike in both of those. It, it was inevitable. So as we look at the resource problem, we see that they are interconnected. For example, if we take water resource, then clearly that's connected through to food production. So what we need is to generate more crop per drop, because as the Global population expands, the demand for fresh water goes up, and we contaminate water in our living style. There's a crossover point if we don't introduce new technology on fresh water supply at about 2050, when the global demand for fresh water will uh, no longer meet, uh, be met by the supply. Let me take my jacket off if that's uh, permitted. <laughs> so, this means that, for example, in the state of Victoria, they've had seven successive years of drought. We can discuss why they've had these unexpected years of drought. The state of Victoria, one of the breadbaskets of the world, is no longer sustaining agricultural farming. And indeed, the state is now introducing large-scale desalination plants to provide the fresh water for the living of the people in the city. And so massive desalination plants, within three years, one-third of the state's freshwater supply will come from desalination. Now, you think there's a solution to a problem. But creating the fresh water by desalination, that's a high-energy process, feeds right back into demand for energy sources. And that in itself, if we're using fossil fuel, leads across into climate change. And arguably, it's the global warming that's caused the crisis in Victoria, the state of Victoria in the first place. So we have a big positive feedback loop within the, within the system. <coughs> we take food production. Again, the demand for greater food production comes back to water resource. It also comes to land resource. And in, in all of this, we've also got to look at distribution. So long before we reach the global demand equals supply, for example, on fresh water, the local areas of the world uh, are already finding difficulty in getting the water that's needed. So we have a series of conflicts which are all, I'm going to suggest, uh, interconnected. Um, one of those that I have not included on here is biodiverse systems. So again, uh, the human footprint itself is overtaking the world's biodiverse systems, and that in itself is, uh, is one of our major challenges as we move forward. I want to suggest that conflict and terrorism will be driven increasingly by the fight for scarce resources. And I have a feeling that historians, looking back on the beginning of this period that we're going into, may see the Iraq war 
as one of the first wars associated with uh, scarcity of resource. And of course, I'm talking about the fact that that happens to be a part of the world with a large oil supply. There's another factor which, uh, which I'll come to, which is that climate change leads to rising sea levels. That leads to less land availability and the question as to whether the migration, the outward migration of people from those areas where land itself is, is the resource that is coming into scarcity would lead to increased conflict as people have to move into already heavily populated areas. Um, I am an optimist, and I hope this comes through as I talk on. <laughs> so what, what, what I therefore want to emphasize is this business of how we take the knowledge base and actually use it. So um, in government, uh, I was faced with the foot and mouth disease epidemic in 2001, and uh, having then spent 24-7 modeling the epidemic uh, with a group of modelers and then being careered around the country in a helicopter seeing that what we were saying had to be done was implemented, I thought, I, I never want to be in this position again. What we needed and didn't have was an effective horizon scanning process, a foresight process that would have picked up the changes in animal movement <coughs> that had occurred since the 1967 outbreak of foot and mouth disease, that was therefore came as a total surprise. The rate at which it spread, the way it spread right across the country, unexpected, because the lessons learned from 67 hadn't been updated to 2001. Uh, and in addition, we didn't know what new modern science could yield for managing an epidemic of that kind. Because again, everything was just based on what had been learned in 1967. So I took the foresight process in government that I inherited and completely revamped it so that it could be used by government to horizon scan for risks and opportunities. And each of these programs of work took about two to two and a half years to reach completion. Each of them involved working with uh, a minimum of 100 experts in each of the fields. And the experts were drawn from uh, the physical sciences, from engineering, from veterinary sciences, medicine, social sciences, economics. So bringing the experts together in this way and working with them intensively, we were able to mine into this amazing knowledge base that we've generated in order to give policy advice into government. And the process was managed each, in each case by a stakeholder board I never started a program without a Minister of Government agreeing to chair the board. And once I had finished the program, I handed it over to the Minister saying, and in a year's time, I'll be back to see how well you've done, and then I'll report to the Prime Minister. So there was a, a slight uh, and well-intended threat behind that, which is we are expecting action to flow from this i give you one example, one of the first that I took on board was Flood and Coastal Defence for the UK out to 2080. So using the best modelling of the impacts of climate change available to us for the UK, we then just looked at what was needed to manage the risk from floods in the UK down to the level in the year 2000. And our advice to government 
was then very clearly spelt out in terms of what was required. Massive engineering uh, uh, restructuring was required. The additional cost of that exercise uh, is about £400 million a year. So the, the government was spending £250 million a year on flood and coastal defence management. It's now £700 million a year. And what we were saying is, in order to achieve the defences that we need, out by 2030, this level of expenditure will have to continue. And the government uh, took it, and we are, I believe, the first country in the world with a programme of dealing with the risks of impacts from climate change as a result of this. So it is possible to pick on these things. I'm going to look with great interest as the mental capital and well-being uh, programme is, is uh, launched. That means given to the ministers uh, for their action in October this year. That was the last of these that I started while I was in, in government. To take detection and identification of infectious diseases, we brought together the human, animal and plant disease communities. For the first time, we worked with about 300 uh, uh, people on that particular project, and here the stakeholder board was extended to an international level. So we brought in the, the WHO, OIE and FAO, the leading international bodies in each of those areas, as part of the stakeholder board. And there we involved people from scientists, uh, medics, <coughs> vets, plant scientists from uh, Africa and China to see that we had a properly international view of the project. And this is really before SARS and uh, uh, the subsequent uh, scare of H5N1 uh, came through. And what, what this demonstrates, uh, our project, is that people in different in disparate fields, although there's a major degree of overlap in their work, never actually meet. So these people working on animal health, for example, and human health, really didn't know each other until we introduced them. One of the findings of our report is that 80% of human diseases derive from animals, are zoonoses. So actually, this is a, a bit of a missing piece. By separating our disciplines out in this way, we can lose out on the kind of knowledge gained by just bringing them together. So let's uh, move on uh, and just uh, taking infectious diseases first of all. Population growth is one factor in the increased risk from infectious diseases, but the bigger factor is the globalization of our living systems. In other words, uh, if you take human beings and their movement, mainly by planes, they are the best possible vector for spreading a disease from almost anywhere in the world. Wherever a new disease develops, therefore the whole human population is at risk. And I'm just giving you here the example of a very slow-spreading disease, uh, HIV infection, um, and the, the awful, awful fatality rate that has followed from not understanding the risk of, of spread of this disease at an earlier stage. So what, what we see here is a, a remarkably high percentage of adults infected in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you'll see it's between 5 and 34 uh, uh, percent over much of that part of the world. Uh, in many countries in southern Africa, the uh, lifespan 
has fallen very substantially. So, for example, in Zambia, uh, anticipated lifespan is about 33 now. Uh, and that has come down from 50 before this uh, epidemic hit that country. Massively difficult for them to develop capacity when so much of their skilled workforce is actually dying early before they've been able to contribute back to society. We have very real problems arising from that in given parts of the world. We need to learn the lesson from this as we move forward, how we can contain outbreaks at an early stage before they go uh, global in the way that uh, this one did. Probably can't see this one too well, but I, I, I just want to take the H5N1 spread of, uh, uh, in, within the bird population globally. Now, what happened was the, the outbreak of H, uh, H5N1 in poultry occurred in this part of the world initially. And then the spread began uh, through the uh, second half of the 90s uh, into uh, the first part of this century. The spread began entirely driven by wild bird movement, but also by uh, a, a, a very different vector, which is the sale of live animals, uh, which takes place because you can't keep dead animals fresh for very long in many parts of the world. So taking all of that into account, you can see that jumps over into here is actually the movement of live animals, almost certainly. Uh, whereas the kind of spread that has occurred up into Europe is, the, is following the patterns of wild bird movement. This has taken a very long time to spread around much of the world and hasn't yet penetrated either of the two Americas. And the point here is that the movement vector for animals is much slower than for humans. Because when we tried modeling the epidemic as a human H5N1, then within roughly three months of an initial outbreak, wherever we inserted it into the model in the world, you've got a global pandemic. So just feeding in a relatively high infectivity rate and then the movement of people by aeroplane, you move into a global pandemic within three months. And of course then the frightening thing is, if we all just think back into our history books about what happened, for example, in Hawaii when the missionaries arrived with a flu bug that the local people had never been exposed to, Massive wipeout of the local population. H5N1 is a virus that has never been transformed into a human-to-human -human virus, so none of us have developed the appropriate antibodies. We're not protected against that. So what, what we would see, if it had the high infectivity rate of a typical flu virus, and if it did become, <coughs> of course, human-to-human -human virus, we would see a global disaster of very high proportion. So when I was in government, we were planning for an outbreak that would lead within three months of the outbreak occurring somewhere in, somewhere in the world. It would take a, about three months to go through the British population. And so we would have this spike of uh, fatalities. We were planning for around 300,000 fatalities in that period. Now you have to imagine if other countries were going through that as well, what would happen to our global economy uh, and distributions and so on. So 
How, how do we manage in advance to plan for something like that? You go talking to the vaccine producers, see whether we can move towards pre-pandemic vaccines. We couldn't develop the vaccine quick enough with current technology to vaccinate, for example, the British population. We have to wait until the virus has formed to develop the vaccine, and that's a six-month process. So pre-pandemic vaccine, can we prepare a vaccine against the H5N1 flu virus that is the bird virus so that we could vaccinate the, the human population and then we have developed the antibodies that would be required to give us some protection against it? And that is uh, what is being developed, especially by GlaxoSmithKline, but several of the other pharmaceutical companies have been developing such a pre-pandemic vaccine. Uh, very expensive. Uh, these vaccines, by the way, don't last uh, forever, so the, the shelf life may be of the order of um, five years, we don't know. Uh, and the government looking, therefore, at a constant reinvestment in this. Or do we vaccinate the whole British population, one of the questions I was faced with, so that we put the antibodies into our bloodstream and that'll last forever? Uh, you only have to revaccinate young people uh, at that point. Big question because we don't know what the human fatality rate would be to the vaccine itself. So th there are all sorts of real challenges around risk management with this sort of thing. Let me just move on to the challenge around food production. What, what we've seen is something quite remarkable since the 1960s globally. We've had what is often described as two green revolutions. If you look at this graph, uh, you would have to say it looks pretty continuous as, uh, as a single green revolution. But we're uh, looking here at the, the yield per unit area. Uh, so this is the, the yield going up here um, in uh, the, the uh, circles. Uh, the production, the total level of food production, the use of seeds and the area actually harvested. So the, the productivity per unit area has increased massively over that period of time. So we've got uh, per hectare uh, uh, an increase of perhaps seven or eight fold in productivity. Now that has been a <coughs> remarkable success. It's been produced by agricultural plant technology. In other words, technologists developing new varieties of grain, new varieties of wheat and rice that were suitable to the environmental conditions they were faced with. What we now need in order to feed a population of that 9 billion is another step increase in this graph. Now, do we have the technology to develop that? Well, of course we do. We have a much more sophisticated technology to hand than we had in this period and that is GM. And the plant technologists will tell you quite freely that the rate at which you can produce a crop using GM compared with the uh, standard techniques of waiting for crop rotation, knee deep in mud, up to your elbows in mud, year after year as you try and develop strains that have the right resistance. Now you can take uh, Aridopsis, you can take a, 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 
a living species, cut out the gene that produces salt uh, resistance, that produces um, uh, uh, drought resistance, put it into wheat, put it into grain. It has been done. Very big improvement in yield. What has actually happened, though, is that the European stance towards GM has meant that the, there is only one country in Africa that allows GM to be planted, that is South Africa. <clears throat> and we have installed, in my view, an attitude towards GM in Africa that comes from a, a part of the world which is in surfeit, which has plenty of food, and where we can be very selective. We can have lifestyle products such as organic, and then transplant that lifestyle choice as a given into countries where they are very short of food supply. So my little challenge to people today who are uh, still fighting against GM is give me just one example of a human being who has suffered from eating GM uh, uh, food products and I will give you hundreds of thousands of lives that could have been saved already by the use of GM uh, uh, plants in Africa. So here again, what we see is a, a discontinuity, not by ignorance, but by public <coughs> choice, which uh, I, I think is something that we all need to work on. How do we, discussing <coughs> these issues, with the public, through the media, engagement with the public, yes, but we also need information uh, passed over in that engagement process. And uh, here's my big failure in government. We didn't manage to achieve that uh, uh, turnaround on GM. We can't afford to leave it. At the moment, Monsanto has been given free uh, uh, GM rights, if you like, worldwide, because the big European companies have shut down their efforts. So Monsanto have a free reign while Unilever shut down its laboratories, AstraZeneca <coughs> shut down its laboratories, and we are not contributing to the effort that could have been carried through. So what we have generated is food shortages. I'm going to suggest that in Africa there isn't actually a shortage of fresh water what we have is a growing population which could be fed with modern agricultural plant technology and that has been eschewed by the governments of those countries. So I, th I think this is something that we really need to uh, look at very careful, carefully. Now just looking at the life expectancy in the year 2002 around the world, you'll see that I've put Africa in the central, center of the map for very good reason. I've already spelt out what is happening here in terms of lifespan. This is the area where uh, life expectancy is now less than 40, and in the pink area, it's 40 to 55. Look at India, for example. India has risen from that sort of level before the Green Revolution took off in India to the region of uh, 55 to 70. It's actually about 63 in India today and rising linearly all the time. So what, what we see is that the rest of the world is catching up and Africa is the continent that is in reverse, in decline. And it's not just HIV AIDS, it is also <coughs> the impact of, uh, of diseases such as malaria, it's also the impact of the, uh, the food 
plant-growing uh, situation. So focusing on African development, I think, is critically important. What, what we need is an Africa that is economically growing and, and able to sustain itself. What, this is what we all need. And just focusing in on, on this have, has been a big part of what uh, I was working on in government. Um, so the, the Africa Commission that the Prime Minister set up has a significant couple of chapters that I worked on which is involved with capacity building out of the need to understand how agriculture, climate change, engineering, science and technology can all deliver wealth creation, and yet that continent is losing 100,000 skilled people per annum in that area. That's the rate at which it's actually falling uh, rather than growing. So capacity building for me in Africa is not just primary school education, which is what Britain and the United States have been uh, uh, supporting. It's certainly not an argument of elitism about producing universities of the highest standing, which I'm afraid has become an issue in, in the international development community. It is about building up centers of excellence in Africa to slow down the creation of an African diaspora of, uh, of scientists, engineers, medics, nurses leaving the country. We need to see that we create centers of excellence that can pull the skill, skill through that, uh, that that continent badly needs. Now I come to the issue I haven't yet mentioned and I guess you would be surprised if I didn't mention it and that is what this 6.8 billion population is actually doing to our environment as we move forward in time. And we have managed what we've done to the environment rather well as, as the problems have begun to emerge. So I just take, I don't know why the cars are on a railway line, but <laughs> just take the, the, the vehicles producing exhaust uh, and what that was doing to our cities. And understanding that and then the introduction of progressive exhaust regulation into cars is what has transformed cities around the world and is still transforming cities around the world. I think the progressive car exhaust regulation is the exemplar of how we can use the best knowledge about what is causing the problem, explaining to governments what is needed to tackle it, and then getting the private sector to develop the solutions under pressure. It's fair to say that every regulation, regulation on car exhaust system has led to squealing from the car manufacturers. We can't possibly reach that standard in just three years' time. They have always delivered for the last 25 years, and they have always increased their profits because we buy the car exhaust catalyst systems in the new cars that are required. So it, it has been a truly progressive regulation that has put a price on uh, managing the environment. So we have cleaned up our cities. Just give, let me have one, give you one more example, the CFCs. And, and uh, the, the fact is that we began to understand from our science that ozone in the stratosphere in parts per billion was what was saving us from ultraviolet radiation and cancer damage and so on. 
and that CFCs were damaging the ozone layer, and we therefore introduced Montreal uh, 1987, the protocol that led to CFC reduction. Massively successful because the, I'm going to say, the chemical industry that were producing CFCs that first complained about the regulation, <coughs> then very quickly found an alternative to CFCs, which cost a little more, improved profits, and meant that everyone was in transition. So out of all of these issues, that sector of the industry that sees this as an opportunity is the sector that will, will break through and, uh, and make money out of it. So we, we're dealing with that problem, that ozone hole over the Antarctic. We are now predicting will repair itself completely by mid-century. So we know how to manage problems. The one we haven't managed, of course, is carbon dioxide production and its impact on our climate system. So I come back to uh, what is my, my favourite graph on, on the climate system. I, I started talking about this in government uh, eight years ago now, and I had data uh, from the, uh, 250,000 years ago. So this is the topic of so-called paleoclimatology. The, the data was obtained from ice cores taken in the Antarctic, and uh, the ice cores were going back to snowfall that had occurred 250,000 years ago. Now, the data kept coming in, and the longest ice core that's been analysed is three kilometres long. The snow that fell at the bottom of that ice core fell 850,000 years ago. So we've got a trapped record of our atmosphere, bubbles of air, and from the oxygen 18 to 16 isotope ratio, we've got a measure of, this, of the temperature. And so from that, we have a very good history of the uh, planet going back 850,000 years. Now what I'm showing you here is 60 million years. So how do we get that much further back? Well, it turns out this is the longest ice core goes back 850,000 years, so this stretch. If you look at the ice cores and compare them with data from ocean sediments, you get remarkably good agreement. Now, this gives us confidence in ocean sediments. We can then go much further back. So this is data from ocean sediments, which shows from the oxygen 18 ratio, high temperature here, uh, maximum temp temperature for the planet, probably about 10 degrees centigrade higher than the pre-industrial period, 50 million years to cool down. This is roughly the point where hominids started appearing very relevant, cool enough, and then we get into these, the biphasic oscillations, which are the ice age warm period oscillation. And this is the temperature again on the scale going back 400,000 years, and this is the carbon dioxide levels, not perfectly coupled. It's a complex coupling uh, between greenhouse gases and the temperature, but you can see that when we have a warm period, carbon dioxide levels are 270 parts per million. When we have an ice age, carbon dioxide levels are around 200 parts per million. And then we come to the Industrial Revolution, and we're happily fueling that revolution by taking naturally sequestered carbon in the form of coal, oil, and gas and burning it, and up goes the carbon dioxide level. It's going up at two parts per million per annum. And so we, will, we know exactly when we're going to pass uh, 400 parts per million. 
the consequences of that increase are what all the discussion is about in terms of the impacts of climate change. How far back have we taken the atmosphere in terms of this graph here? It's roughly, roughly three million years. So the, there is an inertia in the climate system of about 30 years. The next 30 years are in the pipeline. And the temperature rise is fairly modest compared with the rise up here. Uh, but let's just recall that up here there was no ice left on the planet. That was a pretty warm planet. Um, could we get back up to this point? Have we got enough coal to do that? I believe we, we can. Right, so if we burn all of the, the coal, oil and gas we've got, reaching about 1,500 parts per million is within our grasp. And so I think that we therefore see that changing our practice, our behavior, our sourcing of energy is absolutely vital. This is a, a recent uh, figure I pinched from the New Scientist, which just shows uh, if you go back 90 million years, no ice left on the planet, so the, uh, the Antarctic was a, um, a semi-tropical forest, very large animals there. You, you find them when you uh, get to the base of your ice cores. There are the remnants of the forest and the animals. And this means sea levels were higher. So these are the regions of the map that we know that were covered in, in sea at that time. And that, of course, is one of the big challenges of climate change. Uh, sea levels are rising at three millimeters per annum at the moment. If all of the ice on Greenland was to melt, that alone would give us a sea level rise of about seven meters. And of course, we have been believing that the map of the world was very constant for the last 20,000 years, because it hasn't changed, for, sorry, the last 12,000 years, because it hasn't changed very much. And so we've built a very large proportion <coughs> of our cities right on those coastlines. 80% of the world's population is on those coastlines. So the, the sea level itself is a critical parameter. Temperatures, another very important parameter. We certainly wouldn't cope with the sort of temperatures that existed uh, back at that high point 50 million years ago. I'm going to rapidly draw my uh, comments to a uh, conclusion, but let me just quickly say, then you have to give advice to a prime minister as chief scientific advisor. So I understand the problem. What level of carbon dioxide do we need to stay below to avoid dangerous climate change effects? Well, the first answer is, sorry, Prime Minister, that hot summer of 2003, uh, 35,000 fatalities in Central Europe, that's climate change driven. It's the baseline temperature rise before that exceptionally hot summer occurred that gave rise to that excess number of fatalities. So how do we avoid cat catastrophic effects in the longer term is the question. Now, then comes, all right, so how do we avoid a two degree centigrade temperature rise? That became the, the key point for the European Union. And so my answer is in terms of a probability distribution function. I had these prepared so that I could show them to the Prime Minister. There is no simple answer, Prime Minister. All I can say is with the best possible science, that if we managed globally to stay below 450 parts per million, we would be on this blue curve for the probability distribution function. 
So the chances of staying below 2 degrees centigrade, well, you can see that the peak of the curve is at 2.2 degrees centigrade, uh, and the curve is asymmetric. It's got a long high-temperature tail. The chances of staying below 2 degrees centigrade are less than 50%. As a matter of fact, the chances that we will exceed 3.7 degrees centigrade are about 20%. So this is my risk analysis with the best available science today. 20% exceeding 3.7 degrees centigrade, we're already then heading towards melting all the ice on Greenland, and we can start an ordered retreat at some point in the future as sea levels rise. So this is a disastrous consequence out here, and yet 450 parts per million is going to be a very tough call to stay below that level. Um, I believe we should try and do it, because if you, if you look at the other curves, even 550 doesn't look very satisfactory. So we need to stay as close to the 450 level as we can possibly manage. And that's all I can say to a Prime Minister. There's no um, yes to this and no to that. We have to do the best we can possibly manage. Just to highlight uh, risk analysis to him, I said to him, imagine 3.7 is the point where future generations would then find it extremely difficult to survive. This is rather like getting on an aeroplane and saying to the pilot, what are the chances of landing safely? And if the pilot says 80%, which is where we are here, would you actually get on the plane? So the, the, the point I'm, I'm making is, yes, 80% chance of staying below that may sound pretty good, but it's hardly a good risk to take as we move, move forward in time. The implication here is not only do we have to decarbonize our economies as quickly as we can, and I think we can manage that. Uh, we have this, the chemical engineering community surely behind the whole uh, target. We have science, technology, engineering that can deliver this. We need to take the private sector with us, we need to take governments with us to create the regulatory behavior <coughs> that will generate the alternative uh, energy sources and take them through to the marketplace. We can do that. But I'm fearful of this process because it requires a collective response from all nations. So we can't have one large nation. Let us say, we said, well, India has to improve its economy, so we will, the rest of us, agree to cut back. This means that all of our smokestack industries will go off to India and we will buy the products back. That doesn't work. We actually have to have a global agreement that brings everybody on board. So I think we, we can manage to stay below the 450 curve. That is doable. But 450 probably isn't good enough. So we also need scientists and technologists to look at the business of reducing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. Can we scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? I think it's a very real question not as a fig leaf to allow us to continue burning uh, coal, but rather as a process that may become necessary as we move forward in time. So that's probably enough uh, of a challenge to indicate that I think science, technology, engineering have an enormous amount to deliver in this century to meet these challenges. I think we can do it, but we also need to 
wake governments up and wake our societies up to the nature of the problem and to the fact that we can deliver solutions. Thank you. For more from the Research and Development Society, visit rdsoc.org.